This is the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Fur Neiman. If you're looking to generate wealth and passive income in the lucrative world of mobile home parks, you're in the right place. You'll discover solutions to the common legal and operational pitfalls and how to optimize parks to maximize income. Your host is in the trenches. He's a real estate attorney, financial analyst, and mobile home park investor and operator. Now, let's turn it over to Fer Neiman. Welcome back, Mobile Home Park Nation. Fer Neiman here again today with another episode of the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast. Got another great guest. Looking forward to talking about some, some unique strategies that he's employed in his career. He's really big on education, mentorship, networking, seasoned veteran. Really happy to have him on here. Please help me welcome my guest, Steve Case. Steve, thanks for coming on, man. Thanks, Ferd. I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to come on and look forward to our chat. And uh, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, well, likewise. Well, tell us a little about your background. You have a unique background. I think you touch your background indirectly touches a lot of people through Mobile Home University that I didn't even know you were involved in. So I want you to tell people more about that. And then also just you know, what you've been able to do with Seco. And, and then we'll get into some of the details on some of your, your deals past and present and go from there. Sure, Ferd. Well, uh, actually, I'm a retired Air Force pilot. I retired in 06, but I moved in Georgia in 1999 uh, and realized I had just a few more years left in my career. So I, I really didn't like the idea of being an airline pilot and travel and so forth. So I thought real estate would be a good option. Uh, very fortunate to have some strong mentors in my background over the years. Uh, in 99, I met uh, Lonnie Scruggs, who later became a really, really close friend of mine. Uh, wrote Deals on Wheels. I'm sure anybody's yep. been in this industry. That <laughs> Lonnie Deals. Like that's a classic. A... Yeah. Yep. Uh, Lonnie Deals. Ernie, too, uh, also had a course back then, huge profits in mobile home parks. So I got to know Ernie very, very well. Like Spotiford, Jack Miller. A lot of the names people don't recognize these days, but the, they were paramount in kind of forming my career in this space, if you want to say. So for from 99 until 2000, before I retired in the Air Force, I focused on MH space also did some other things, but uh, like most of us, I started with Lonnie Deals, a couple of little things here locally, middle Georgia area. And then uh, after I met Ernie in 2000, I bought my first park, 67 pads. Ernie helped me put the deal together. Uh, we did a unique strategy, which we're going to talk about later, this master lease with an option. Um, also, Ernie got me in the self-storage space. So I've kind of been dual-hatted for all these years, mobile homes and the parks and self-storage. Um, in 2004, Ernie was doing some training around the country, uh, different locales. So I kind of pitched in and helped him. By that time, he had taught me quite a few things. I think I had four parks at the time. We started doing it in Houston, different cities and so forth. Well, unfortunately, Ernie had a stroke. So myself and my partner at the time, Corey Donaldson, started doing this training, which we created mobilehomeuniversity.com. And basically it was at one locale, one event a year. Uh, we started out a couple of hundred. When we eventually stopped doing it in 2008, we had 800 people in Austin, Texas, and it was primarily geared to train folks, mostly new people thinking about getting the industry or those that were already just starting, didn't really know where to go from there. Uh, out of it, uh, in the very beginning, spawned boot camps. We had three or four a year in the big metropolis of San Angelo, Texas. This is what, <laughs> where Corey had three parks. I uh, did some self-storage boot camps as well. But around 2008 or so, uh, life was real busy. Teenage kids had a lot of properties, self-storage, multifamily, and MH space. 
So I kind of stepped aside and that's when uh, Frank Groff and Dave Reynolds kind of, I just turned it over to them, sold them the business and they've grew up pretty large, the mobile home university, uh, what they do and everything. Great training. Uh, Frank's a good guy. I've known him for a long time. I can tell you some good stories about Frank when he hated the business, but obviously he's an icon in there in the industry now, but, uh, and in 2008, I also went on the board as a community owner for the Georgia Manufacturer Housing Association. Uh, there's two board members that are community owners, myself and Spencer Roan, and that's where I met Spencer. Uh, we sat down one day and said, hey, these park owners out here are kind of disassociated with everyone else They're on their own island. Why don't we all meet one day on a Saturday up in Atlanta, central location, and just share ideas to help each other out. So that that's what formed SECO, what's called Southeast Community Owners. That first meeting, I think we had 12 people. Oh, wow. And it's now grown into, uh, we're expecting upwards of 800 this year. It's, a, it's the largest event for community owners, small to mid-sized and large owners in the country. And it's no and, longer for it's no longer for the southeast only, right? I mean, not the no, no. It's got it's we. I've been there last we've couple. Got of the years. name Seco, yeah. yeah. Matter of fact, most of the people that come aren't from the southeast, right? But well, this year, I'm in charge of the educational platform, which is what I truly love. Back when I was in the Air Force, I, my last five years was an instructor evaluator pilot on a Boeing 707, and, uh, and through the years, I've just loved training and teaching and mentoring and. And that's what SECO started as, us getting together, helping each other. And that's this year we're going back to the roots as far as the educational platform, uh, which, thank you, you're going to be there this yeah. year. No, I look, forward, knowledge base. I look forward to coming. People can email me after this, too. I can give them the link to to sign up, to go. And um, I'm going to give a presentation on contracts and the key documents you need for your transactions. I know you're going to give a presentation there as well. So it should be good. And yours is going to focus mostly on, well, I think you've got more than one, but in particular, you've got one on master lease with option. I definitely want to cover that today because that's a unique strategy. And the lawyer in me says there's pros and cons, but I also see that, you know, as an operator and owner, there's, there's some unique benefits to go on the master lease route. So I wanted to get your expertise on how you've been able to do yeah, it. I think looking you've done it more than most. Yeah. Well, uh, to me, heard it's always been keep it simple right and that's what these guys taught me back when i first started uh, back in you know 99 2000 to me a master lease with an option is very very simple the sum they make it complicated nothing against lawyers but sometimes <laughs> they make them very complicated but uh i've kept it simple over the years it's been a great tool for me obviously it has to take unique uh perspective unique uh different variables have to fit for it to work but uh I have done several. Last count, I think, was nine. Right. So the, ba the basics of a master lease is, is basically what? You you have rights to operate the park. You don't yet own the park. You're leasing it, so you're making some form of payment to the owner, and then you have the option and the, essentially the right to purchase it, generally at a predetermined price at a future date, at which point you will then own the property. In the meantime... If, if something goes wrong, you generally have you know some outs. Basically, you can choose not to purchase it. That can be tied up depending on the level of the contract. But it's almost like a form of seller finance, but with more flexibility for the for you, the tenant buyer. And then you can own an operate to park, which allows you to improve it uh, before closing day, which can help with you know valuation, financing, timelines, etc. Is that is that kind of the, the gist of how you're you're rolling through these? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. And there's some other variables as well. But uh, basically, like you said, you're renting the park. 
and you have an option to buy it, there's usually a term of that option. I always like to have a minimum of five years. I can purchase anytime between now and the five years. I'm not set to an exact purchase time frame. You know, you've got to purchase it on this date. Uh, and it does have a fixed price. A lot of times people ask, how do you, how do you know what the lease payment should be? I've always made it very simple. Let's say the interest rate's 5% and you're, you were gonna buy it for $3 million, it's 150,000 a year, you divide it by 12 and that's what the monthly lease payment is. Mm -hmm. uh, and you've really got to keep them simple for, for the sellers. And there's something I want to pass on to all of your viewers is, I have made it a rule throughout my career in investing in whatever space it was to be. There's only two deals I've ever purchased where I didn't get to know the seller. And they were both self-storage deals. All of the park deals that I've done, it, and I've bought very few from a broker, by the way, less than six. Uh, even with a broker transaction, I'd say, okay, listen, you have to give me access to the owner. I want to go there, talk to them, spend a few days, because i got to know why they want to sell the park. And that's key in the master lease with the option. You know, it's always management issues, infrastructure issues. They can't afford capital expenditures. They're tired of it. Uh, could be a lot of issues, but and if you can find that root issue, now you've got to come up with how to solve their problem. Uh, and usually it's not a monetary problem. It's one of those things. And then so you say, I can solve your problem. And then you can go on and talk about how the master lease with an option would benefit them. Uh, you know, no property tax. I mean, uh, no uh, tax you have to pay on the sale because they're renting it to me. Um, I'm just making sure they're... They get a fair price. I can overpay for a property sometimes. You know, I got, I've had sellers stuck on prices. Uh, a good example was a deal that I did that, in my mind, was worth about $2 million, but he wanted two point four. I said, that's fine. I can pay you two point four if we do this master lease with an option. You know, I tried to make the lease payments as little as possible because there was some upside I need to fill in the park. I needed to fill some lots. And I figured, you know, if I could fill up another four or five lots, it would be at the 2.4 what I thought it was worth. So... Uh, I just made the lease option a little, or the lease price a little bit lower. Uh, and I kept it. So he was happy. He got his price uh, and we ran out that deal and it worked fine. It actually went out for about three and a half years before I eventually purchased it. Uh, but the positive cash flow thing, a lot of these folks, you know, they got a good sum of money coming back. What are they going to do with it? Right. Many top operators are not going to go reinvest it in another property. You know, they're ready, they're done. What do they do with it? Well, who wants to put it in the markets as volatile as they have been, can be? And I give them a guaranteed fact, you know, I ACH them the payments, everything's fine. Uh, and we go along, we go about our business. That was one of my, that was one of my questions. Yeah. If I can jump in there. So, I mean, if, if you, if you come by and you want uh, to pay 2 million, I want to pay 2 million. Neither one of us want to pay 2.4, but in your case, you say, look, I'll give you the 2.4. I just need to have it over time. So that's a way that you've faced an objection. You know, generally you're listening, you're going to know them. The objection is they want 2.4. You found a way to get there. What about a scenario where um, they want 2 million firm right now? Will you pay them the 2 million or do you then say, no, no, I don't, I don't want to do the 2 million now. I, I will convince you the master lease option is a, is a good or reasonable offer for you. How do you kind of, I feel like a lot of the sellers I've talked to, they're like, no, I want my money. I don't want, I don't want to play banker. And they, they see it as playing banker. And maybe that's where you build rapport over spending time with them. But how do you over, overcome that objection so that your offer stands out against the crowd that's, you know, that's, that's representing, you know, cash offer, you know, whether it's bank or personal cash, it's quote cash to the seller. 
Well, obviously, if they want a full cash out, there's really no way to do the master lease with option. But but that's where I think uh, what I'm missing, what I'm not seeing for today is this creative idea and thinking that was forced upon us back in the you know the early 2000s. If you remember, there was no lending sources for MH back then. For those of you as old as I am, I just turned 60. So, but anyway, uh, so you had to figure out it was all owner financing, it was all cash payouts and so forth. But what one of these guys taught me, which was very, very unique, and I don't think anybody's doing this, and I'm going to talk a little bit more so about this at SECO, is okay, I've got a seller, right? Why not? Why don't I go find a substitute seller? And you say, what are you talking about? Very simple. I go to, in this case, let's say 20 people. And I'm just throwing out a number. It could be two people. And I say, okay, I need $2 million for you guys to put up to buy this park. And oh, by the way, let's do it out of your Roth IRA. Now, that's something people don't think about. Right. Over the years, the many strategies most of us use to build up large Roths using options. And you get them to put, you bring another buyer or seller in, in other words, a private investor, private person to purchase the park and then you master release it with an option to buy from them. I've done that several times. So, so let me make sure I'm following you. So let's say that I'm a, you know, I'm a, I have a regular job at, you know, local bank X. I'm a, mm -hmm. I'm a, you know, security guard at bank X. I've built up a Roth IRA. I've got, I've got $500,000 in my Roth IRA. You come to me and you say, Hey, Ferd, use your Roth to buy this property. And then I will finance it from your, I'll sell or finance it or I'll lease option it from your Roth. And then you, and I, one day I'm going to buy it from you at a agreed upon price, a higher price. And then the, the proceeds are going to stay inside your Roth, thereby increasing the size of the Roth and still maintaining the tax shields or tax benefits that are the part of the underlying Roth. Exactly. As long as you're using the right custodian, you have to use a self-directed IRA custodian, equity trust and trust some of the other ones out there. Uh, here's, the, here's a typical deal that I've done in the past. So, uh, you get this particular instance was two people. They went in to use the Roth money to purchase the property. I formed an LLC, each Roth IRA is 50% membership. What I gave them was 5%, uh, let's say it's a million dollars. So they got 50,000, 25 a piece in quarterly payments to the Roth IRA. And I give them each 10% of the upside of the property. Okay. Now what's 10%? Well, I'm eventually going to buy it, right? This right. was a turnaround project. So I knew I could increase the value rather quickly. I said, I'm going to keep you in the deal minimum of two years. So they're 10%. Their, their Roths went up 50000 a year. So after two years, now I got to pay them each 600 a piece to buy the property. That's the way the option was set up. Okay. So, uh, you know, great for them. You know, what's that, a 15% return on their money? This was in the, like 2006 or seven. When so everything you, was so you bought it quote cash with their Roth money. You, so there's no bank involved. No bank involved. We we formed an LLC and they're both Roths for 50% members. And the seller in this case got their million dollars on the Yeah, day. that was a case where I got the price down enough. I had a seller that was not willing to do the lease option, master lease with an option. So I just substitute, I went and got my own buyer, if you want to say, and then lease option it from there. That's interesting. And I've been on the other the side need. of that transaction too, where I've actually used my Roth money to purchase a property with a couple other people that another operator did the same thing. Great. Yeah, I sold I sold two parks to the guys that did that. They had they used their Roth to buy it. Um, and 
I was like, okay, fine with me. You know, I didn't care, but it was, I was, I had not seen that before. So that was, it was good. So part of the, part of the strategy here for you was at this point in time, getting traditional bank financing at, at, at least on this property was going to be challenging or less favorable. So you found your own bank, but you found basically a, a, a buyer that was going to have an immediate take or a, a known takeout from you that you had a the right or the obligation to buy them out at some future date. Right. And in this case uh, with the Roth guys, it was a little bit worded a little bit different. I had, I had to pay them off. Yeah. So it was, it was a, an option, but there was a clause in there that, you know, eventually now we, we could have extended the option. They're okay with that, but it was, you know, I needed to get it done by two years because I was giving them pretty good upside, but, uh, but yeah, it's all of my projects for up in, except for two have been turnaround deals where I've had to infill properties or, you know, create some value out of some nastiness, if you want to call it. <laughs> uh, and so, you know, it's been very difficult to do, that type of lending, especially back then with banks, because they didn't want any part of it. Now I did spend, uh, one of the things I didn't say about the very beginning was, you know, what you've done over the years is I think it was in 2010, myself and four other guys worked with Clayton bank of trust. I got to know Jim Clayton really well because Jim actually came to our old mobile home university, MHU, we call it mobile home millions national conference and spoke and spent three days with the crowd. There's so about 600 is in Orlando, I think no seven. Uh, but we formed, we, I helped them form programs where operators could get lines of credit to infill or park through, right. you know, chattel loans with their. Which is, is that basically now the what's 21st mortgage cash program? Uh, 21st cash. Yeah. That's uh, Tim Williams runs 21st, but back then, you know, uh, Jim had sold out to Warren Buffett. Right. And so, he had his own bank, so he had a program, but 21st was doing it. But this is more, 21st does it kind of per home basis. This was like a half a million dollar line that you could move properties in and out of, kind of like a- uh, Yeah, inventory three? floor plan. Inventory, inventory floor plan, floor. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I've, got that, I've been able to do that on a couple of my parks, actually numerous of my parks, but with a couple of different mm -hmm. banks. But it was, it was definitely not easy at the beginning where they were, the bank's like, we're not going to finance the homes. But then later I got them to finance the purchase price but not to set up reno. Well, then if I bought a used home, it's like, yeah, I need a lot of cash for the renovation and for the transport, for the concrete and all that. So eventually I got them to finance hundred percent of the project cost, but only for parks, they had the land load on. So you got to do it before yeah. I re before you refi the local bank out. But, that's but, before I, but I mean, getting back to the other part, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I kind of wanted to make sure people are probably wondering why in the world would you want a master lease with an option when you get, if you can, you can just go buy it from a bank. Uh, one, it saves you a lot of costs. I mean, a lot. There's a lot of costs associated with loans. Sometimes you got to do phase, you know, all the phase one stuff, all of the sometimes hydrology studies, you name it, on and on and on. Right? Uh, appraisals, that sort of thing. You don't need to do this now. Granted, you got to be careful. You have to do your due diligence. You can't just go do this without looking at the property, and making sure everything's okay. But uh, I typically can get in very cheap like this. The very last one I did, which I just closed on it last August, and I and I initiated this thing in December, I mean, sorry, January of 2020. So it was at two and a half, no, 19, three and a half years I had under a lease. Um, it was a four and a half million dollar deal, and I only had to put up $10,000 as option consideration. Wow. So it was very little. There was no down payment, if you yeah. want to call it. Uh, so you can get control with little money down. That's one of the reasons I did it. 
Uh, you can get cash flow with minimal investment. This particular property wasn't an infill, only had 12 empty lots out of 147 spaces. So it was already cash flowing really well, but there was some upside on rents. Some of the homes, it's a big rental property, 108 of the homes are rental homes, you know, late wow. model, 99 through 2004. Uh, but also I get all the equity increase because the price is locked in. Sure. No property tax increase. That's huge because it never sold. Right. Now they could come out, reassess it during the normal assessment periods, but it's much less likely triggered. Much less likely because there's no disclosure of sales price, right. no new mortgage, uh, things of that sort. And in this particular case, there were some capital improvements that need to be done, about $100,000 worth that I agreed to as a part of the lease to get done in the first 12 months, which we did. Okay. Uh, but above all, uh, I had a, a self-storage property about two hours away that I knew I'm watching the market. I knew it was one I was going to get rid of at some point in time. I'd owned this thing for about almost 15 years. And I said, you know what? This park is going to be where the money's going to in exchange. So I, I was very fortunate. I waited until t the beginning of last year when everything was skyrocketed, uh, sold it and just 1031 right into this property. So uh, there that's, are some benefits. Yeah, that's a, that's really important. I'm glad I want to highlight that because you mentioned that to me previously that you basically have built your own replacement property pipeline because you then could sell your self-storage property at top dollar pricing and you knew you had a place to put the money. I personally, I sold the property in December last year at strong pricing and I was able to identify five properties, my 1031, and I'm planning on closing two of them next month, but the other three, I don't think I'm going to be able to close. So I'm going to, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to place all that capital. So I've got a, a partially successful, partially failed 1031. Um, so yeah, if you have a, if you have a property that you already control, there's, you know, you already know the property, you've already been operating, you already done DD on it. You already have the, you know, the firm right to buy it. Um, that's a, that's a great option. Yeah. It's, it's worked really well for me. I, I, I I'm more of a people person when it comes to buying these properties. I got to get with the owner. Uh, and after a while, once you talk to them and they see you care about the property and you want to upgrade it and do some other things, they're, they're more willing to work with you than just a broker that, you know, you get in these offer, counter offer, so forth. Uh, and a lot of times they're worried about their management and their, and their maintenance staff. Well, I, I typically try to keep everybody at least to give them an opportunity to see if they'll work, work well with my company and what I do. Most of them do. Uh, so that's important. So once you get to learn why someone's selling and you can solve the problem, it's usually not a money problem. Matter of fact, most of the time, it's not a money problem or selling. So you solve the problem, then you go in, that's when the money comes in. And most people realize they're better off getting payments every month and receiving a steady income than they are a lump sum of cash because they don't know what to do with it. Yeah. And tell me about that. I know you've done this successfully as well. When you go to pay them off, you know, or how many of them are like, hey, what happened? I want my payment still. Well, yeah, and that, yeah, that's funny. Uh, we, you and I talked about this when we were, uh, last time when we met. Uh, more than half the time, uh, by the way, I got to let people know, they're probably saying, does this person have this thing paid free and clear? Most of them, I would say majority of the ones I've done have, but some haven't. So there's some precautions you got to go through with that underlying mortgage, which I, it's usually with a local bank. We meet with the banker. We get it all set up to where, uh, I pay their payment. The banker emails, notifies that it's taken care of out of the lease and all that sort of thing. And yeah, if legal, legal, legal or whatever. Yeah. Legal disclaimer there. You want to get 
if not a full preliminary title commitment, an owner and encumbrance report from a local title company because that'll disclose. Oh yeah, I still get a title report for it. Yeah, that'll disclose go. that you've got there is a mortgage of record, and typically that mortgage would need to be paid off at closing. But in this case, you're not transferring the deed, so there's not a required payoff. But if you're buying it for a million dollars, you want to make sure they don't have nine hundred ninety nine thousand dollars of debt on it in front of you. So that's why you're saying you go meet with the bank and say, hey, let me just let me take over the payments, and you factor that into your cash flow. And or your price, because if somebody has a million dollar right. property, but a $999,000 loan, they're not supposed to get $200,000 option fee. You know, we're not supposed to get any exactly. option fee. Uh, so a lot of times what I'll do is I, it's written in the option. I got to give them a 60 day notice before I will close on the property. And especially for those that have moved off or I don't keep in touch with, which is, you know, several of them. Uh, I get a phone call and what do you mean you're going to buy it? I really like the payments coming. I said, okay, here's what we need to do then. Let's make it an, if you will just become the lender, let's go ahead and close it. You become the lender and they're okay with that. Have you because been able to get them to take a history. second position? Have you been able to, like, let's say the property's a million. You've now made it worth 2 million. You want to buy it at 2 million. If you got, you know, quote, refinance debt on it. You could probably get a loan for million five, million four, but you can put a lot of cash in your pocket tax-free. In those instances, if you still owe them a few hundred thousand, have you tried to get them to take a second position lien or have you just decided to be low leverage and just convert the payments to a low leverage loan? I've always stayed low leverage for, I mean, I've been, uh, in my ultimate goal, and I'm really, really close, is to get my entire portfolio debt-free. So I've always, uh, I've not been one to refinance and pull money out of properties too much. Okay. And I, I'm sure I could have, but I just never really pushed that. You know, we keep everything the same. Uh, here's another interesting thing. I had one with a, a gentleman out of Florida that was 8%. This, I think we did this in 2007 when the rates were higher. And uh, we go through, I think, uh, several, and he had owner finance after we had done the lease option. I. 1031 out of a 40 unit apartment complex. And the bank came to me and said, Hey, we can do 5.2 or something. I remember that. And I said, wow, it's going to save me, you know, three or 4,000 a month. So I, I called him up. His name was Mike. I said, Mike, got some bad news. I'm going to have to pay you off. Why are you paying me off? Well, it's 5.2. And he said, just rewrite it at 5.2. Wow. <laughs> so we went to attorney, spent a few hundred dollars and, you know, rewrote it. So he's just happy getting the payments every month. So it worked out really well. No, that's good. Now, would you ever sell? Would you ever personally sell on a master lease option, or would you prefer not to go that route? I know you sold several uh, of your parts already. Yeah, I sold two that way. Okay. Yeah, just to, didn't have anything to exchange into at the time, so I didn't really want the you know to get the taxes on it, and it was somebody that I knew, uh, somebody that was in the business already, so I had a relationship with them. So that's. You know, as long as I know who it is, it's no big deal. And it, and it was fine. Okay, Unfortunately, great. I don't have them anymore. They paid me off. But. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. Anything but else yeah, on? Anything else on option is a really good tactic. Uh, very few people using it these days. A lot of times they won't ask the question, but you almost imperative. You got to get to know the seller before you go down this route. And you have to keep it as simple as possible. If you start talking very complex issues with these sellers, uh, they're going to go ask their uh, lawyer or somebody and say, what about this smash release option? And he's going to say, oh, no, you don't want to do that. The guy can walk off, destroy the park, all these kind of bad right. things. 
yeah, I was going to ask that. Have you had any problems with, you know, doing CapEx, getting people, vendors to work for you or dealing with the city that you don't have ownership or do you have to just get some sort of affidavit or power of attorney or get the seller involved? Uh, very few times if I had to. There's one particular property, uh, well, this last one that I had that was uh, city, it was all city utilities, which is fantastic, all individually metered, and the roads and the streetlights were owned by the city. This guy okay. built the park in 1999, beautiful park. So we had started having some issues, and I would contact and say, hey, I need this portion of the road fixed. And they said, well, you're not the owner. Fortunately, the owner's local, uh, and I was able to grab him, go with him, and say, hey, you know, He's now running this thing for me. So anything he says that needs to be done, would you please do it? And that's how we rectified it. That's good. Now I want to touch back on another item you mentioned earlier. You were master leasing a park that had um, over a hundred park owned homes. So how do you factor in, you know, large scale renovation costs? Is that just part of the deal that you're going to bear all those costs? And in general, what's your preference on park owned homes versus tenant owned homes? Uh, well, I've always been a tenant-owned home guy. We all have been, I think. Uh, there's a, a gentleman involved with this property with me uh, who's also speaking at Tico that handles pretty much the day-to-day -day stuff. Uh, so we're partners in it. Um, he loves rental homes, has been doing them for years. So I thought, well, we'll give it a try. It's kind of in a renter's market. It's a good tenant base. Uh, we've tried a couple of folks, uh, matter of fact, we're getting ready to write up a, a home sale on a lease with an option or rent to own type contract with a tenant. But there were some significant costs. I think we, in the first three years, spent 300, 350 on yeah. CapEx stuff, mainly mobile home repairs, roofs. Uh, I'm, I'm a metal roof guy. So as soon as the shingles start to go bad, I just throw metal on top instead of, I know it's a little bit more expensive, but they last forever. Uh, so we bore all those costs. It was another good thing for the, the owner or the seller to see we're right. making the park better. Um, and you know, he would have, it's interesting. He would have owner financed it for us for me, but fortunately this last deal that I sold was paid off. So it, it, I was able to get this debt free, this park, but uh, but yeah, we bear all those costs. We, I don't go back to the owner for anything using on a master lease with an option. It says, I want them just to get a check every month. There's infills. I mean, we put probably, well, we got uh, all but one lot filled before I bought it. So all those homes we put in are all brand new product or, or belong to us. Now, what about uh, the deed? Do you have them put the deed in escrow or at the time you give them the 60 days notice? Is that the time you say, hey, it's time to prepare a warranty deed and send it my way? And, and then do you Well, I, I actually, it's funny for the, we, we do the closing with an attorney here in Georgia. We don't have title companies, but uh, a lot of people said, did you do the master lease with an option with an attorney? I said, no, we didn't. I made it up myself <laughs> uh, as part of what we talked about back in the days when Ernie used to teach his courses. He was big on the master lease with option. He had his, now I've, I've taken the option, run it through my attorney to make sure it's okay. Uh, the lease was five pages, very simple. And the option was two pages long. So we both went and signed the lease, went to a notary, signed the option. He still, we went to lunch that day, uh, took the option down to the courthouse and filed it. So it clouded the title. That's all we did to actually initiate the transaction. Over half of them, that's what I did for my car or whatever you want to call it. So nice. Uh, now, granted, once, like I said before, I did do, when I knew we were going to do this, I had my attorney do a, a title search and preliminary title work to make sure there wasn't anything in there 
maybe he was hiding or didn't know about and it was clean. No, that's good. That's one of the that's one of the potential pitfalls of a lease with options. Some people are like, oh, I'm not I'm not buying it yet. I'm not going to do my deal diligence. Like you're going to be 300,000 in and then realize the guy doesn't own it or realize yeah. the guy has a mortgage of 5x on it. It's in the way. Like oops, you know. It's interesting when we did this title work uh come to find out he had put it in a trust. And this gentleman had had a stroke was the reason he was selling. He was still cognizant and everything, but it kind of affected his right side. And he had forgotten, honestly had forgotten he put it in a trust with his kids as a beneficiary. So when I found that out through the title search, we, we got together with his attorney who put together this trust and said, okay, can we get the kids to sign off that it's going to be this option? And that was all taken care of before he and I did everything. Okay. But I would have not known that without that title search. Right. Exactly. Okay. But, but yeah, I'm, and, and I know people are going to have a lot of questions about this. Like I said, I'm going to be at, at the SECO conference this year. Uh, another aspect we're going to have is the roundtable discussions at, every night. There's going to be 12 roundtables with what we call two hosts. You're going to be hosting one of them on you know the legal side where every person that comes can individually go and have one-on-one -on -one time with folks. And that's going to be probably the area I'll be answering a lot of the lease option questions after my presentation, because I've got a split presentation uh, with Ben Brabin, who's going to be talking about creative deal-making. So I'm just going to be talking about this segment maybe for 20 minutes and what well, we've talked already for 30 and you just can't cover it all. So. Right. No, that's good. What other, Steve, what other tips or tricks or lessons learned you want to share from some of your Well, I, I'll tell you, I'll give everybody secret sauce, right? Everybody needs some secret sauce in today's environment. Uh, the investing environment's getting tough. Uh, uh, one of the guys we've got coming this year is a, an economist. This guy's unbelievable. He actually is a consultant to the Fed. Casey Conway's his name. The reason I mention that, he's going to be giving a presentation on where we're going from here and what's about to happen. Very, very, one of the smartest guys I've ever met. Uh, lending's going to change as we know it. There's several more. I don't want to pass doom on your podcast, but <laughs> there's there's several banks in deep, deep trouble on the commercial real estate side with evaluations. Uh, so there's go it's going to be tough this year, uh, the next couple of years, I think, on our whole industry. When it comes to financing, uh, over-expected pricing from people that own them now, or they paid too much, or we got... Uh, loans resetting monthly, they're going really high. So uh, one of the, the, I think the next thing that people can do that nobody's doing, uh, Frank Rolfe briefly touched upon this a couple of years ago. I think he tried a project in, I believe it was in Austin, working with the local government to turn a property around, was, wasn't was successful. He had a, a local councilman fighting the whole way. Uh, I was involved in a project two years ago called the Perry Project. A uh, small town in Georgia, about 30 miles south of here, had this horrible, horrible property with a terrible operator. And the city was clean, a beautiful little city, uh, 20,000 people, has the Georgia State Fair. Uh, millions of people come to this thing once a year. And they're they cleaning this city up. And then here's this guy right in that path that wouldn't do anything. Uh, bank's about to take the property back. But to make a long story short for I got contacted by the bank, said, we know you've done this before. We need help. Can you talk to the bank president and the mayor? So I went with a friend of mine who does a lot of uh, setting, cleaning, 
uh, he's in the mobile home industry as well. And we sat down with that local mayor, city planner, police chief, fire chief, and the city engineer. Worked together as a team. We call it the Perry Alliance. And they were willing, they had already fined this guy over $100,000. It was going up at 100 a day because he wouldn't do anything. The bank was about ready to take the property back. It was a mess. But we were all able to work together to create this beautiful 100-space park when we got done. We had to put 35 homes in a trash can, wow. all new roads. The city put in a million dollars worth of water, upgraded the water, new fire hydrants. Uh, we brought in new home products. Four brand did you did you did you end up buying it from the previous owner or was this all as a consultant? Well, he, yeah, he was about to lose it. So part of this was, like I said, when you uh, there was the banker said, we'll give you his name. Go down and talk to this guy. He's about to lose it. You could probably offer him just a little bit and get him to sell it to you. So and a broker got involved with the two that knew what was going on. So we sat down with him. I think we gave him fifteen thousand to walk away. Oh, wow. Uh, and then he you were able know, to get the, he didn't you, know a whole lot of it. You were you were able to get the city to kick in a million bucks infrastructure to save the park. To, to save the area. And the mayor was excited. The everybody was excited. They worked with us the entire way for a year. Now they put they put uh, expectations on us. One, they wouldn't remove the fines unless we did this, this, and this. We had 12 months to do it. And the bad part about it was just when COVID started. Hmm. you know 20 that time frame was when people couldn't talk and be around each other and everything else but uh it was a wonderful alliance for the first time ever in the 25 plus or almost 25 years i've been in this industry did you have a, a town an operator a bank everybody working together to turn around a mobile home community and we all did it i mean we worked together it was wonderful the mayor's super super happy the park's great now i don't own that park right now we ended up having uh, 78 empty lots once we got all of the trash out, kept the homes that were the some of the people that are good residents have been there for a long time. And it was a big infill project. So I had one of the larger uh, guys that I knew came in and said, listen, I'm, I'm buying 80 homes a month, putting them in parks throughout the country. Let me buy this property from. So we did that and he filled it up. So it's full now. And wow. everybody's happy, but we, but we were able to form this alliance in a community. The residents were happy. The city council was happy. The mayor's happy. It's affordable housing for people, and they're all loving it. I think oh. that can be replicated throughout the country with the right people. Oh, that's great. It's a great success story. It's Well, I mean, and we're also Cole, the gentleman that's involved with me, is going to give a presentation at SECO on exactly what we did and how other people can do it. No, oh, cool. I look forward to hearing it. But, but that's my secret sauce, I guess if you want to say. I think that's the next area that nobody's doing. I know everybody's fighting. I know you're involved in the fight. Right. right. It's it's fight. It's hard to fight City Hall. I mean, you you, yeah. you found a City Hall that was willing to play, and you had to. There, you know, both both parties had to, or more than two parties had to all get along and put in their effort. But that's great. I mean, I've seen some cities that are willing to help out, and I've seen some cities that are like, we hope you go out of business, and it's like so those are the ones that are hard to hard to deal with. Um, but yeah, if you can find a way to make it work for everybody, even better. And uh, affordable housing is a need. It's becoming a greater need oh, every day. So I, I think, uh, you know, with, I even asked Mayor Walker, I said, Mayor, if, if, if I was able to team up with somebody else and do this again, would you be willing to talk to the officials? He said, absolutely. He said, I'll be a referral to anybody you want to 
do this. They said, you, you virtually saved this area. The, the police, I don't know how many thousands they saved a week, but I can't have a car there and everything else. So it was, uh, it was great. It was wonderful. It was good to see, but for the, the most excitement and enjoyment I got out of that whole deal was those 22 residents. One of them was 62 years old and spent his entire life in that mobile home park. Wow. Birth to marriage to raising his kids and so forth. Wow. The, the excitement and the, the sense of relief on their faces. Uh, they even hugged my partner, Cole, that helped me with that project and they loved him. But to see the people where their neighborhood was transformed from you know uh, drug addicts in the empty homes, it was just horrible. That was probably the most fulfillment I got. It wasn't the money made. It was great to align with the, the government, but to see those folks that, and now they're having neighborhood barbecues and everything else before they they would not go out after dark. It was just horrible. But, no, that's, I definitely can appreciate that. I've seen that not to that level, but other parks where we move in and we fix everything. And then all of a sudden people have been there for years and years are like, you brought it back to like this owner five years, five owners ago, you know, we're buying a club, we're buying a park here in about three weeks. And I met with a resident as part of our DD. He's been there for 40 years and he set the houses to begin with. And he's just like, he told me the history of all the owners and when it went to the bank and then the next bank. And then when the flood came, when these guys did this wrong and he's, and he's just kind of like, he's, he's now, I think he's like 90. So he's, you know, you know, he's already given up on the park turnaround. I'm like, we're going to get this thing bought. We're going to fix it. And he's kind of looking at me like, heard that before, but when we yeah. do, I think we will. When we do, I'm sure he's going to be the first guy to come up and, you know, give me a high five or, you know, like, good job, man. So I look forward to it, but that's great. stuff. Well, uh, one last thing, if you don't mind me uh, talking about, you know, the Seco event, a lot of people don't understand that we, you know, over the years we've been able to get, we got four manufactured homes that are coming we got all the service providers, the vendors, the suppliers, the service industry like yourself, brokers, lenders, uh, all packed into this uh, one area. But so there's really everything that you need there. But the, the huge thing is the networking. Uh, some of the best investors, the most successful investors that I've met through the years have been through events like this where you network them. Where we're all willing to share information that we know to help people out. Uh, this year, it's going to be on 9-11, September 11th. So we've got two wonderful keynote speakers coming to, to honor those that lost their lives that day and also the war on terror. Uh, one of them's a dear friend of mine, uh, Scott Mann. Uh, you and I talked about him earlier, who I helped him and his brother back in 04 and 05 with three parks that they uh, inherited kind of from their parents. And uh, Scott's now retired Lieutenant Colonel that's on Fox News. You'll see him. Uh, part of Operation uh, Pineapple Express that helped people get out of Afghanistan. But he's going to be talking about how much the industry has meant to him as well as tie in the 9-11 tribute. So it's going to be a good event. Cool. I look forward to it, Steve. I appreciate your time. Thanks a lot. Thanks for all your wisdom here. Oh, no problem, man. If anybody, like you said, if anybody wants to know how they can be, uh, go to the event and all that, I, you know, they can get in touch with you. You'll have the information on your website and send out some emails and so forth and I appreciate you having me on. It was fun. You got it. And I look forward to seeing you in September at SECO. 
Same, same here. Thanks, Steve. You've been listening to the Mobile Home Park Lawyer Podcast with Ferd Neiman. Ready to learn more? Go to www.themobilehomelawyer.com for free resources and materials to help you succeed. If you love the podcast, go to Apple Podcasts, give us your review, and subscribe today. Thank you for listening. Neither the Supreme Court of Missouri nor the Missouri Bar reviews nor approves certifying organizations or specialist designations. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely upon advertisements.